Well, good morning, folks. So we're continuing um, today in our, <coughs> excuse me, in our series um, on Habakkuk, and we're looking at a, an honest faith. Habakkuk asks some pretty difficult questions um, that are really important for us to look at. But one of the good things that Habakkuk teaches is that we shouldn't actually be afraid of hard questions, that we shouldn't be afraid to sometimes question what we believe and why we believe. Because God doesn't just want us to be unthinking people who simply do what we're told. But he wants us to understand. God is a, uh, God, is a God who wants us to understand what it is he asks of us and why he asks us to do some things. And Habakkuk also shows that God is a God who is not afraid of us asking hard questions. So, um, we're start, we, last week Mark started by looking at uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Um, and this morning uh, I'm carrying on. Um, we're going to start at verse 12 of chapter 1. But we're going to continue on into the first five verses of the second chapter as well. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, it's Habakkuk chapter 1. We're starting at verse 12 and the words will be up on the screen. So Habakkuk says this. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look in evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you t- tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent when one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That's why they are glad and they rejoice. That's why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so that one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like shale and like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the people for himself. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that sometimes we find your word to be confusing or 
to be challenging, sometimes in equal measures. And so we pray now that as we spend this time looking at, uh, at this passage, we thank you that you had something that you, want, you spoke to Habakkuk and you answered his questions. And so we thank you that now uh, in our time that you can still speak to us. And so we pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us and help us to respond to it and to put it into practice in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So Habakkuk poses a question which has troubled many people of faith right down through the ages. But it's also a question that is asked sometimes by non-believers to question God's very existence. And I want to put the, I want to paraphrase Habakkuk's question like this, and it's how you'll very often hear it said today, that if God is good and God is holy, then why would he allow suffering and evil in the world that he has created? Why would a good God let bad things happen in the world? And our passage is split in two. Um, We're going to look at Habakkuk's question in verses 12 to 17 in chapter 1 and verse 2 of the second chapter. And then we're going to look and we're going to see what God's answer to Habakkuk is in verses 2 through to to 5. So instead of paraphrased Habakkuk's question, let's just look for a wee second at exactly what it is that that Habakkuk asks and, and, and what the question is that he puts to God. And first of all, I need to say that Habakkuk's question is not an accusation because he begins by recognizing who God is. He recognizes that that God is completely different from him or from us, that he is timeless and eternal. And so he says, are you not from eternity or are you not from everlasting, Lord my God? And Habakkuk also does recognize that God is good and that God is holy. He says that your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And finally, Habakkuk recognizes that God, because he is a good God and because he is a holy God, is also a just God. He said, Lord, you appointed them. That's the the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. You appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. And last week when Mark started this off, what Habakkuk was complaining about then was the sin and the disobedience of God's people, that they weren't following God in the way that that they were supposed to. They weren't keeping God's laws and commandments. They weren't worshipping and serving God in the way that they were meant to be. So Habakkuk recognises that as a people, they have failed and have disobeyed God, and therefore God is right to punish them and to judge them. Habakkuk's problem is how or who God is going to use for that punishment of his people. And so he says in verse 13, So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than 
himself. Because the Babylonians, and I'm going to keep calling them Babylonians, I find it easier to say than Chaldeans for some reason. It's the same people. The Babylonians had a fearful reputation for, for violence and cruelty. They didn't fight to protect themselves from other people. They fought peaceful nations who were no threat to them at all. They didn't fight for peace or for justice. They fought because they actually enjoyed the fear and the chaos that war brings about. They reveled in it. They didn't fight to take what they needed. They fought to take as much as they could from everyone else round about them. They treated people like animals just to be hunted down and slaughtered. And so it says in verse 15, the Chaldeans put them all, sorry, pull them all up with a hook. They catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. They were so greedy and so bloodthirsty that they were never satisfied. It didn't matter how many nations they captured. It didn't matter how many people they slaughtered. They were never satisfied because of their unquenchable thirst for conquest. And so Habakkuk says in verse 17, Will they therefore empty their nets and continually slaughter those, slaughter nations without mercy? So what, God, what Habakkuk is effectively saying to, to God is, I know we're bad. I don't disagree about that. But they're worse. They're so much worse. Why would you use a people like that for anything, let alone to punish us? And so, having asked that question, Habakkuk now waits for an answer. He expects that although he's asked this question of God, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I don't understand why you'd use these people. He then says, now I'm just going to wait for God to answer me. There's that expectation still of faith from Habakkuk in God. And so he says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Habakkuk is aware of the fact that God's appointed him to be a prophet. And so therefore, he's asking this question not just for himself, but he's asking himself this question for our people. And so now he's waiting for God to answer so that he can give an answer to other people that are struggling with the same question. And God, as I said, does answer. God starts by commanding Habakkuk to write down this answer so that other people can read it themselves. Write down this vision Clearly inscribe it on tablets so that one may easily read it. Guess what? Habakkuk did write it down. And that's why we're reading it today. So actually when God gave this answer to Habakkuk, he probably had you and me in mind even before we were born that we could actually read not only Habakkuk's question, but we could actually read God's answer to Habakkuk's question. Now, God's answer to Habakkuk is probably given more fully in verses 6 to 20, so at this point I can say that that's going to be Mark's job next week. 
But the summary that is given in verses 2 through to 5 is this. God says, just as I am punishing Israel now for their sins, a time is coming when I will punish the Babylonian for their sins. And so that's why he says, the vision is not yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, although it certainly come, will come and not be late. So in other words, God is saying, the time for the punishment of my people is now. But the time for the punishment of the Babylonians is coming. Just as the punishment that you are now receiving because of your disobedience is sure, so is the punishment of the Babylonians. And so the one who is from eternity, the one whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, the one who cannot tolerate wrongdoing, will deal with evil. But he'll deal with it in his time. Not in Habakkuk's time. Not in our time. And so for us today, as we look around the world and we see what is going on in the world, the message of Habakkuk is that God is eternal. But tyrants and empires come, tyrants and empires go. When you look at the Bible, it says that at one point the dominant power in that part of the world was the Egyptians. Then they got replaced by another lot called the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians got replaced by the Babylonians. But we also know from reading the Bible, the Babylonians eventually got replaced by the Persians. And then we go slightly outside of biblical history. The Persians got replaced by the Greeks and the Greeks got replaced by the Romans. And that brings us into the New Testament. And then we leave biblical history and we know that even the Roman Empire eventually went. And that's the lesson of history. That no tyrant, no empire outlives God. And so you can go right through history and you can see there used to be an Ottoman Empire, a Turkish Empire. It's gone. There used to be a British Empire. It's long gone. There used to be a Soviet Union. And it's gone. God is still here. And so you can look at what's going on in the world today and you can look at someone like Putin who is desperately trying to cling on to his long-gone Russian empire. He's going to go. God will still be here. You can look at what God, you can look at what is happening uh, with Assad in Syria. You can look at what Kim Jong-il is doing in Korea. These people will not outlast the eternal one. They will go and God will still be here. So that's the reassurance that God wants to give to us today. Our trust is not in human beings. It doesn't matter who the government or who the power is. It doesn't matter where they are good. It doesn't matter where they are corrupt. They will not last. But our God is from eternity. And he will reign forever and ever. That's where our trust, that's where our hope is. Even when we're watching the news today and we're seeing the fight that's going on in Israel with the Palestinians, 
that's going to end. And God is still going to be here. No matter what happens in our world, that's what Habakkuk's answer to us is. Our God is eternal. Our God is going nowhere. And our hope and our trust is in him. So, other than just to be patient and to wait, what else does God want people to do? In verse 4, there's a contrast between those who live in arrogance and sin and those who live in obedience to faith. Verse 4 says, Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by faith. So the righteous, those that God sees as being good because they're living by obedience, will live in faith. But faith in what? Or faith in who? Faith in their own goodness? Faith in their own self-control not to do evil? Faith in their own ability to show kindness and generosity? How is that kind of faith in your own abilities any different from the Babylonians' faith in their abilities? And you might say, well, come on, Andrew, it's always day and night. You know, the righteous are, 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 are committed to doing good and the Babylonians are committed to doing evil. Which kind of misses the point of where we are in Habakkuk because the righteous are not doing good. They're not being obedient to God. You see, you can be good up to a certain point and you can be good for a certain length of time, but at some point it's going to slip. Let's be honest. We do try to be good people, do we not? By and large. But we don't always make it. Okay? We're not going to admit to it, but let's be honest. There are times when there are words that come out of our mouth that um, we wouldn't say on a Sunday morning. There are times when we think things about people that we couldn't possibly put into words, but they're there. Somebody cuts you up in the waterway, how much do you pray for that person to be blessed? We try to be good, but we're not always good. Isn't that true? For all of us. So this is where this question. If God is good and holy. Why would he allow suffering and evil in the world he created? This is where suddenly this question turns around. And it starts to bite us. The questioner. Because what happens when a good and holy God after he has finished dealing with the evil of the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or Putin or Assad or someone else, what happens when that good and holy God turns his attention from all of them to us? What happens when that good and holy God suddenly turns and says, and what am I going to do about the evil that you have brought into the world that I created. Are you going to be like the people of Habakkuk and just point to our people and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. They're worse than me. 
as if a good and holy God should deal with all the sins of other people but should leave us alone. So this morning, what's your faith in? What's my faith in? Who's your faith in? Is your faith in doing good things? And they are good things. Giving to charity, volunteering for good causes. Have you made a God out of your own abilities by putting your faith in things like how clever you are, your education, your job, your relationships, money, power, your possessions, your house, your car, whatever? And do you think that just because you can look at others and say, well, I'm better than them, that that makes everything else okay? Do you think that just because you can point to someone else and very self-righteously say, well, I'm not a drunk, I'm not an addict, I'm not violent, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief, do you think that all of that makes me or makes you acceptable to God? The phrase, the righteous will live by faith, is actually quoted three times in the New Testament. It's found in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. And every time these words of Habakkuk are quoted in the New Testament, they're always quoted in the same context. That is faith. And what we have faith in is not what we as human beings have done, but is faith in what God has done for us through the sacrifice of the cross. And so therefore, Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Not faith in themselves, not faith in their own ability to do good for a while, but faith in Christ, who never sinned, who never disobeyed. The cross of Christ is God's ultimate and final response to the evil in the world that he has created. And I loved it this morning that Samuel read for his Philippians chapter 2, God himself, the one whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, the one who cannot tolerate wrongdoing, came into our world and he took all of the sin and the evil that we are responsible for. He took that on himself. The one who is from eternity, the one that Habakkuk said will never die, did die. He died the death that we should die because of our sin. Not just the sin of other people, but the sin that I've done. The sin that you've done. Just in the same way as I said a few moments ago, God told Habakkuk to write his answer down because he had us in mind today. When Christ was on the cross, he had you and me and our sin in mind. And he came and he was willing to pay that price for you and for me, even though we don't deserve it. And again, as Samuel pointed out this morning, preach my sermon for me. The contrast between the humility of Christ, who didn't just look out for himself, even though he was God. Christ, who could have stayed in heaven and accepted the worship of angels and accepted the worship of us as people. Christ didn't put himself first. 
He came and he put us first. And that's where we always fall down. We can be good for a while. But ultimately we come back to this thing that we put ourselves first. And we put other people, we put ourselves before other people. And so that's where the sin in the world comes from. It's not God who's responsible, it's us. So, if God is a good and holy God, why would he allow suffering and evil in the world he he created? Be very careful what questions you ask God because you might not like his answer. Because God has made it clear he's not the problem, we are. God has said that there is going to come a time guaranteed when he is going to come and he is going to deal finally and completely with all the sin in the world. And it says that God is going to do that by making a new heaven and a new earth, by making everything new. But it also says that when he comes, he's going to look at every single one of us and we will be divided into two groups. Those who are living by faith in themselves and what they've done. Those of us who are living in faith in what Christ has done for us. Like I said, a time is going to come guaranteed when God is going to come to us and say, and what should I do about the sin and the evil that you have caused in this world. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God is holding off that time to give as many people the opportunity to accept Christ and to be saved through faith in him as possible. But there will come a point where God will say enough is enough. And that window, that opportunity for faith in Christ will be closed for all time. What are you going to do when that day comes, when God asks you about the sin that's in your life or the sin that's in my life, will your response be, I'm a good person or I'm not as bad as others? Will you point the finger at other people and say that it's all their fault? Or will it be, I know that I'm a sinner but I'm a sinner whose faith is in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross is God's response to the question of evil. And now God is waiting for a response from you. So how are you going to respond this morning? If you haven't taken that step of putting trust in Christ, then that's where you need to start this morning. And if you don't know how to do that, then please either speak to myself or speak to Mark or speak to someone here that you know and that you trust. And we would be more than willing to explain to you how you can go from having faith in yourself to having faith in Christ. And if you've already done that, then this morning I want to invite you to come to this table. That is a reminder of the fact that God hasn't just sat in heaven above all the, the sin and evil in the world, but God has come down, as, as Samuel said, to our level.
that God gave himself so that we could be forgiven. And let me just remind you that the Bible says that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we take this bread and wine, it is a reminder to us that one day that table will no longer exist because we will be in the presence of the Eternal One. We will be in the presence of a God whose eyes are too pure to look on sin. And what will we say to him when that time comes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and holy and merciful God. But we thank you that even although you are right when you condemn us because of our sin and because of our disobedience, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you have given us a means by which we can be forgiven, that we can be accepted by you. And it's not through anything that we can do, but it's by wholly putting our trust in you. We thank you that you are a God of power and might and majesty. We thank you that we know that this world ultimately is still in your control. And so therefore, as we look at things with our human perspective, help us to put our trust in the God who is from eternity, the God who is the power behind the throne, the God who says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to do that just now in love and in worship because we want to, not because a day will come when we have to. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.